All right. So we're in this sermon series. Fearfully and wonderfully made this morning. So we've been we've been in this sermon series. We're looking at that this is how God has made us, fearfully and wonderfully. And the purpose of the series, like what we're doing each week, is we're taking um we're looking at our culture. We're looking at what I, what we're contending is the dehumanizing lies around many of the issues in our culture. Dehumanizing mean that when you really double click, when you go deeper into what's being said, you realize it's a pretty low view of people. And yet the Bible has a very high view of people that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so we're seeking to sort of expose the dehumanizing lie in our world and lift up and offer forth the hopeful and true uh, view of ourselves and how God has made us you know, from the Bible and from the gospel, okay? Um, this morning, uh, we're looking at uh, the title of the message is Follow Your Body and the Bible, Not Just Your Heart, all right? And we're looking at the topic of homosexuality in the Bible, homosexuality in the Bible. Quick, easy outline, all right? This morning, if you're tracking, you just want to follow along, the world is our first point. The word is our second point. And then in light of the word, we want to consider God's uh, better way for us to approach this topic. So let me just read you a quote, because I think this quote really really accurately sort of displays what's going on when, when we talk about this topic in here uh, from a book called Love Thy Body. People are no longer asking, is Christianity true? They're asking, what are, why are Christians such bigots? The challenge is to show that in reality, biblical morality expresses a higher view of creation and the body than secular morality does. It grants greater dignity and worth to the human being and ultimately is more fulfilling. So we're not just hiding bad news from people. We're offering forth good news. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. So as we consider this topic of homosexuality in the Bible, I know that there are you know, different kinds of, of people listening in. And let me just give a couple, and you can see if you relate with one or all of these, and maybe it is all of them. First is the loyal friend or family member. And, and, and you're listening this morning, perhaps part of you is thinking, will you say something in a way that hurts me, my family, or my friend? And let me just affirm that. Let me just affirm not that I'm going to do that. Let me just affirm that loyalty. That's good. That's a good thing. And you know what? In this day and age, I think this applies to a lot of us because this topic touches everybody. There's also the fearful person. Perhaps that's you or part of you asking the question, how do I keep my family away from this, this moral cliff that the world is is obsessed with and asking everyone, come over here, come by the cliff. Like, how do we steer away from that? And that is good to be protective and to want to lead your family well. And um, that's good. But we probably should not be enslaved by fear, right? And then there's the this person, the Bible heavy. 
very concerned about this world person. And your question is, Pastor Matt, are you going to be bold and clear enough this morning with the Word of God? Or should I go down the road? <laughs> maybe. Then maybe there's the Bible lighter person who is just wondering and wanting to make sure that this morning we will read the verse, do not judge lest you be judged. There's equipping for all of us as we consider this topic this morning. And I think that needs to come not from what we're bringing in this morning, but from God's Word. There is the personally struggling person, and this is it's true in our church, and I know it as a pastor. People asking around this topic in question, you know, is this a safe place to struggle with this topic and these issues personally? You know what else that person is asking? I'm going to tell you right now, this is the truth. They're asking, is this a church where the leadership and the pastors will be truthful from God's word about this? And then there's just all of us. Like maybe that is all of us. Maybe we're all kind of in all of those chairs. But I know one thing is true of all of us, and that is that we are all sinners. And if you don't think so, God certainly does think so. That The Bible says we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all need grace in our lives that comes not from inside, but from outside, that God gives to us through Christ. We need the gospel, the good news. And that's what we have to offer from God's word. And that is what Christians believe in. I love this definition of the gospel by Tim Keller. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We need the gospel. When we talk about this topic, we need the gospel. So let me just uh, read a couple of scriptures for you. And the purpose of reading these is I want to read these and then I want to pray. And these scriptures are for us this morning going to help us set the tone, all right? The tone of this conversation. Three verses I have. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we, watch this, distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's the tone we want this morning. Not, not sidestepping tough verses in the Bible, not twisting and coming up with fancy, not very likely interpretations of verses in the Bible or apologizing for them, but setting forth the truth plainly. Another verse, John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Speaking of Jesus here, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of, do you see it? Grace and truth. 
full of grace and truth. And, and just know that with Jesus, it's always both grace and truth. The, the most important word in that phrase is and, grace and truth. Jesus is not walking around going, is this a grace situation or a truth situation? Is this a truth situation or a grace situation? No, with him, it's grace and truth always. The word became flesh. The word became embodied, full of grace and truth. And finally, Matthew 12, verse 20, speaking here of Jesus, quoting from Isaiah, that Jesus was the kind of person, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. Jesus had strength and he was gentle. And that is the tone we desire to have today. Let's pray. Let's pray and we'll jump into our first point. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. And we thank you for this time to sit before Scripture, to consider a topic that I know we all have feelings and thoughts about. Lord, may we just recognize right now that your wisdom is higher than our wisdom. Your ways higher than our ways. And so God, I pray that our minds would be open, our hearts would be open, our very lives would be open to seeing, to hearing this hopeful, this truthful, this better way that you have for us in following Jesus Christ, even in the area of sexuality. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so first... I want to consider together the world, all right? The world, a simple outline. The world, the word, and then a better way from God's word. So the world, and I, maybe we could skip the point because you live there, I live there, you know it. Let me just uh, make a few observations, though. There's a script. There's kind of a, a, a pathway that is like the way right now in the world. I think it will sound familiar to you. It is this. If anyone experiences same-sex attraction, they have discovered their authentic self. And they will be most fulfilled by openly affirming it as their most true identity. Saw that coming out. Now here's the thing. If, if you take that path in the reverse direction, it's a one-way street, by the way. If you take that path, if you go the wrong way down that one-way street, right? If you go from same-sex attraction to opposite-sex attraction, you will be quickly disbelieved, accused of suppressing feelings and even self-loathing. People will be concerned. This is the script, though. This is the path. This is like what we're told is true. Last night, uh, family dinner, we're preparing for uh, this message. I say that like we're all working on it or something. Uh, No. I was just sharing like, yeah, I'm a little nervous about the message tomorrow. And I realized, oh, our our eight-year-olds are at the table when I said that. And they're not going to be in here and they're not going to hear this. And I'm like, okay. Everybody's like, what's it about? And I'm like, um, I'm kind of working on it. Ah, it's like about when boys want to marry boys and girls, girls, and my eight-year-old's like, 
talking about gay? I'm like, yes, <laughs> that's right. That's correct. You go to public school. I forgot about that. <laughs> to which she proceeded to tell me that on the slide on the playground, this is a slide that is enclosed, so it's the tube slide. When you go down the slide, the words are written there for you to sort of experience as you go down the slide. Gay, hooray. I'm serious. So, you know, I mean, like, whatever you think about that, it's like, there's a lot to wonder about that. Like, how did it get there? You know, is that safe? You know, it's just lots of things. Of course, it's just funny, really. But we do live in a world where this is majorly celebrated. It's a, it's a gay, hooray world. Let me just show you something. I think this is fascinating. Again, we're talking about kind of the world right now, like what people are saying in our culture. Anyone played Nintendo before, specifically Mario 3? Let me just show you a picture. And for some of you, this will bring back memories, perhaps anxiety. Um, For some of you, you're like, what is this? Let me explain. This is a game on Mario 3. You, 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 You press the A button on your controller, and it stops the first one. And that's now your baseline. And you are now tasked with matching the middle one and the top one to the first one. And they're going really fast. And there's music playing. And I've learned that actually you can sort of base your A, pressing the A button off the music. And that's going to be the best result. But this is a real thing. And if you get them all matched up, you get a free life. Okay? I think if you get the uh, flower all matched up, you get like five free lives. I don't remember exactly. But this is from Mario 3. So here's the thing. In the world today, the idea is that you are born and you're given a birth sex. Like, And there are some people that are a little bit resentful toward that. They don't like even a doctor assigning a sex at birth. You know, but, but everyone is kind of given based off anatomy and biology a birth sex. And so that's kind of your baseline. That's what you're starting with. But, and this is the world today, your sexual attractions or feelings, they may or may not go with sort of the norms of your birth sex. And then even your gender might be a whole nother thing. And the world today says it's better to ignore and make irrelevant the direction the body gives you. Just go with how you feel, and let's celebrate diversity. Again, the title this morning, Follow Your Body and the Bible. So here's here's the lie. And again, on the back of your sermon note insert, you have, for each week in this series, the truth and the lie. Here's the lie on this topic, the dehumanizing lie. It's this, that only sexual attraction reliably, that's the key word, reliably points the way to fulfilling sexual orientation, life, and identity. Ignore your body and the fuzzy Bible if they don't fit with your feelings. That's our world. Before we respond to that, really thoroughly from the word and the third point as well. Let me just quickly give you a response. This is from 
a Christian woman who still has same-sex attraction, but left a lifestyle of being a lesbian to follow Christ. And she says, her name is Jean, and she says this to Christians. Please realize that affirming all of that is not the loving response. What is genuinely loving is a response that helps me, she's saying this, honor my body by living in accord with my creator's design. I was born this way, female. God did create me, a woman. Please don't fall into the dualism that divides my spiritual life from the life I'm now living in my body. Again, we want to this morning follow our body and the Bible. Follow general revelation, our body, and special revelation, the Bible, and not just our hearts, our feelings. That's the world. Now let's consider the word. Let's consider the word on this topic of homosexuality. Okay, so we're going to be flipping through some verses in the Bible, and I think the thing to know about this topic is that the Bible addresses it not on every page, as some perhaps would fear, but it sufficiently and thoroughly addresses the topic of homosexuality. And so when people say, oh, it's so fuzzy, it's not really saying that, you can be sure as a Christian, that's not correct. Here's why that matters. And in fact, let me just say this real quick. The whole purpose of this sermon series, people have come up to me and said, hey, this is a really great series. Thanks a lot, Matt. Yeah, it's good that you're being bold. Way to be bold, Matt. And I'm thankful for that, please. I hope that you will say that after this message. Um, but uh, I just want you to know, like my goal is not that I would be bold. Actually, it's really easy for me to be bold, you know? Like I got this thing right here. Like I'm, you know, yeah, it's not that hard. Um, my goal in the series is for you to be bold. You know? um, it's to equip. And really, if you think about it, one of the things that keeps us from being bold and also from being loving is that we're not equipped. When you're in that interaction with that friend, family member, or neighbor, or whoever, on any of the topics that we're talking about in these weeks together, when you're not equipped, all of your energy and your emotion is going towards like, am I saying the right thing? Do I even believe the right thing? Do I know what I'm talking about? I think if we're equipped and we know what we need to believe, we know what we believe, we know our faith, we know the biblical worldview, then more of our mental and emotional energy can go toward, in those moments, being present with people. We can focus less on, do I have the right thoughts on this? Do I believe the right things? And we can focus more on like, I want to be loving in this moment. I want to be authentic. I want to be truthful, but loving. You see? All right, so the Word. That's the reason why we need to get in the Word. So the Word. I want to give you five verses on this topic with truthful and quick interpretations, and we can certainly go deep into each one, and we won't have time. First is Genesis 2. Genesis 2 is a creation account. And Genesis 1 could also be included this is the creation account, and it's important to understand that these are not just stories, fairy tales or stories of what happened long, long ago. That's not all they are. These are paradigm-establishing events. These aren't just stories. This is the story. Does that make sense? Here, God is quoted 
and we're going to read it, as saying that when he made Eve, he was making a helper fit for the man. So, let me read to you Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground... The Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, and these are the first human words recorded in human history, and it's poetry. It's a song. He's so excited. Then the man said, this is At last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man, watch this, keyword, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, you might say that doesn't say anything about homosexuality. You're right. But what does it do? It casts the vision of the Bible's vision for this partnership that is procreative, the the first marriage. And by casting that vision in a very specific way, God is saying you will flourish This is my best for you in regards to marriage. By doing that, a lot of things are ruled out. Look at number two. This is another verse. And I think it's important just to go through these because these are the verses that come up. Jude 1, 7. Now, the reason I share this one with you is because this is a New Testament quotation about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. And what you will hear, and we don't need to read that whole story, but you could read it, it's Genesis 18 and 19, okay? But what you will hear people say about the account of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament is you will hear people say, and you could go read it, it's very graphic, you could read it later, but people will say, oh, well, the the sin that was committed at Sodom was the sin of inhospitality. And um, they're actually right. It was very inhospitable. And, and there is a case to be made that, that there was a higher standard for hospitality and there's some things that didn't happen that should have happened and you could argue that, but Jude, Bible, interpreting the Bible, Jude, the brother of Jesus, says this, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities So it wasn't just this one occurrence that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah where people were not hospitable. The surrounding cities too, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality 
and pursued, here it is, unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Jude has his own point for bringing that up, but just note that the New Testament understood Sodom and Gomorrah to be talking about sexual immorality. Leviticus 18, the holiness code, the law in the Old Testament. It says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. The word abomination means faulty, corrupted. It means means not in line with God's creation intention for you to flourish. Now, people will try to dismiss this. They will say, oh, that's the law. So are you also not eating shellfish? People say this. You going to apply everything? Are you going to do everything in the law? Don't bring this one to me if you're not going to, you know, you hear this. Okay, like, that's fine. Let's, let's talk through that then. There are three kinds of law, civil, ceremonial, and moral. This is moral law. Jesus says in the New Testament that he came not to abolish the law. Remember that? but to fulfill it. He said not a jot or tittle. That's not a period or a comma. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so we should give special attention to the areas of the law, the law that Jesus says he fulfilled, that he carries forward from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And he definitely carries forward the moral law, and in particular, sexual morality, according to the Bible. The ethic is carried forward by Jesus. More on that in a minute. Number four, probably the main passage in the New Testament on this topic is Romans 1. Romans 1. Let me just tell you what we have in Romans 1. In this, in this series of verses, there are, there are three sort of escalating, degrading of humans' exchanges. You'll see them when we read it. There is the exchange of worship of the true God for idolatry. There's the exchange of the truth of God for a lie. And there's the exchange of natural relations for unnatural relations. Let me just read it to you, part of this passage. Verse 24, Romans 1. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due Penalty for their error. So Paul is very clear in what he's saying here about sexual immorality, about homosexuality in Romans 1. It's clear that it's not, in Paul's mind, the only way he could illustrate the unrighteousness of man before God as he's introducing his letter about the gospel in Romans. It's clear that in Paul's mind that's not the only way he could illustrate it. But it's also clear that he chose to use that as one of his illustrations. He says things like dishonorable passions. He says dishonoring the body. Fearfully and wonderfully made. 
shameless acts. He says, passion for one another. Sometimes people say, oh, this wasn't, this, this, Paul's not talking about what we have today with loving, you know, like monogamous couples where there's no, like, there's no coercion or any of that stuff. Like, he's talking about pederasty, the ancient Greek practice, and there's all this stuff about that. And, and it's worth thinking about. But just look closely at the text. It says passion for one another. That's a mutuality. That, that's not a perpetrator and victim relationship. It, yeah. So Romans 1. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, the word is pornea, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. The Greek word there is literally man-bedding. It's clear in the New Testament, the practice of homosexuality is deemed as immoral, as not part of God's desire for human flourishing. In, there are many more verses. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6-9, Paul uses a Greek word. So he's over here, right? He's in the New Testament. He uses a Greek word from the passage we already read earlier, Leviticus 18, that the translation of the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, in the Greek was called the Septuagint. Paul would have read that. So Paul takes the Greek word from Leviticus 18 and he uses it. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, on purpose to make a connection. The sexual ethic of the Old Testament, the sexual ethic of Jesus and the New Testament and the church connected. So that's the Bible. The world, the word, being equipped, knowing these passages, and now God's better way. So here, what I want to do first is I want to remind you what the lie was, the world, what we talked about. And it was this, that only sexual attraction reliably points the way to a fulfilling sexual orientation, life, and identity. Ignore your body. Ignore the fuzzy Bible if they don't fit with your feelings. Here's the truth. This is the truth. This is what we have to offer. God's better way is, whether single or married, more on that in a moment, to live a fulfilled, pure, and holy life that is in harmony both with the design and purpose of one's body and with the clear teaching, not fuzzy, of the Bible on sexuality. That's the truth we have to offer. A better way, God's better way. And so what I want to do is answer five questions real quick. I want to offer some wisdom and hopefully some biblical insight on five questions. And, and I think we'll see the truth, this perspective I just shared with you, sort of bubbling up in the way that we talk about these questions. First, does Jesus talk about homosexuality? If not, why not? Okay. 
You might have noticed we did not yet read a passage where Jesus was talking, air quotes, red letters. We didn't do that yet. So what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I guess in one sense you could say no. He, Jesus, does not directly address that topic in the way that you're asking that question. But please, let's first admit, let's understand something. Understand this, please. That red letter Christian thing, like it's not a thing. Like I, I, and I used to talk like, I used to say that too. I'd be like, man, I'm just kind of burned out. I'm just going to spend some time in the red letters, you know? But just know that there are not levels of inspiration of God's word. There's like 1.0 and 2.0. It's not a real thing. It all falls and stands together. It's the Bible. It's the word of God. So just know that first. Like first, let's just say that, okay? Secondly, just know on this question, does Jesus talk about homosexuality? Just know that Jesus teaches the biblical view of marriage. He doubles down on it a couple of times. He teaches it as being from creation, and he thereby indirectly addresses the topic of homosexuality. He did not name homosexuality because it was probably not the controversial topic among his audience in the way that it is for us today. But just because he did not specifically name it, it does not mean that it was not included and ruled out and judged to be immoral by what he did say when he doubled down and affirmed the biblical view of marriage, which he does in Matthew 10. He says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Man shall leave his father and mother. Have you heard that before? We read it a minute ago, Genesis 2. Okay. So does Jesus talk about homosexuality? No and yes. Number two, if someone does not choose same-sex attraction, how can that be wrong? Hey, this is like this is a really important question. And and this is a really personal question and this is a question of fairness. And we need to think about this. The first thing we need to say is be honest about a couple of things. One is that science is totally inconclusive on this. Nature, nurture, choice, ah Identical twin studies have shown that it's not genetics in the way that you might think or DNA. Yet, most people do not consciously choose their feelings of attraction. No. You probably didn't. Most people do not. These feelings feel very encoded. And just another quick note on this. This this conversation, this whole like this whole playing field where we're at right now, this if someone doesn't choose single sex attraction, how can that be wrong? Like that's not even really the argument anymore. Like if you're reading a book right now and you're wrestling through that, you're reading a book from the 90s. You got to understand like that used to be the way we talked about it. Like don't blame me, I didn't do this. I realize it's wrong, but don't blame me, I didn't cause it. Like that's how people used to talk. Now it's like, hey, there's nothing wrong with this at all. It does not even matter if I chose it. In fact, I I want to choose it. In fact, you should choose it. It's the coolest thing in culture right now. Everyone should choose it. Like that's actually like the deal right now. So, okay, sorry. Here's the point about this though. 
as Christians, if you're a Christian, you have got to understand human depravity. You've got to understand that we are all, that is you and me, born with desires that the Bible deems immoral. It's not a question of if you have desires that the Bible deems immoral that you were born with. The question is, which ones? Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's why we want to follow our body, general revelation, and the Bible, special revelation, not only our heart. Sam Albury in his book, Is God Anti-Gay? He says, desires for things that God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me not how God has made me. So we have to remember on this topic and on this question, God calls people to come to Jesus, and then he calls them to be holy. There are many forms of heterosexual unholiness. Heterosexuality is not the definition of holiness. Christopher Yuan, in his book on this topic, says, and I quote, the opposite of homosexual is not heterosexual. It's holiness. Holy sexuality is the pursuit of Christians. There are two paths in this holy sexuality. One is singleness, where you are pure, and the other is faithful marriage between a man and a woman, where you are faithful. Both are awesome. Both are fulfilling. Both of these paths are held up by Scripture as God's ideal. We live in a culture where God is sex, singleness is hell, and marriage is salvation. And often the church acts like that too. And so singles feel really demeaned. Like, great. What options are you giving me here? We've got to be better than that. So, I think we got away from the question, but we're going to go to question three. Should Christians be okay with gay marriage and family? Like support the legalization of and or attend a gay friend's wedding. Like, how should we approach this? Well, okay. First of all, it is the law of the land, so I guess you got to be okay with it. Um, right? Mm-hmm. So, now, should you want it? Should a Christian want that to be the law of the land? What do you think? I mean, like, no. What is the Lord's Prayer? Just like the most basic thing, like, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like, that's our want. That's our desire. Should a Christian want there to be protection against discrimination and harassment for people in the homosexual community? Oh, yes. 
we should be leading the way on that. How can we not want there to be protection and dignity, fearfully and wonderfully made? Should we as Christians want that protection to be called legal marriage? Uh, I, I, I probably don't think so. Marriage is a gift of marriage and family is a gift with mom and dad. It's an institution of partnership and procreation. It is given by God at creation. It is not just a human institution. Be between a man and a woman with the intention of human flourishing. And while this is a great ideal, not always attained, you think of single parents, it is a great gift from God. And when we reject or go against what God has given us for our good, that is not good. So, should you attend a wedding? Uh, <laughs> let me say this you should be invited. Christians are called to love. Christians are called to be the most loving friends. And so you should be invited. Um, I kind of view a wedding as not just a stage, a platform, and a crowd, but I view it as witnesses supporting and endorsing a covenant. And so should you endorse? Should you, by your attendance, endorse something that you, in your mind and heart, believe is not best or right? I would say probably not. I would even say that's not very authentic of you to do that. So, Romans 1, we read already, it ends with those who approve of what others are doing. So, I'll read you this quote. Rosaria Butterfield says uh, she was speaking uh, to a group of women and a woman who was in a lesbian relationship for 50 years came up to her. She had kids and grandkids, and she came up to Rosaria, who Rosaria Butterfield is a speaker who once was a lesbian professor at a university in New York and is now, um, you know, walking with the Lord and has written a couple of books. So this is from that book. She says that this lady came up to her and she said this to her, listen, I've heard the gospel and I understand that I may lose everything. Why didn't anyone tell me this before? Why did the people I love not tell me that I would one day have to choose like this? So, let's be authentic. Number four, I, I know we're going long, but you know it's second service, so. Um, and uh, we'll quickly go through these, two, these last two questions. Is this an open hand or a closed hand issue? Christians. What do you think? Well, let me say, it is a closed hand issue. This is an essential thing. What is at stake on this topic is the authority of the Word of God. You know, there are some very poorly written books about how they kind of, people kind of try to take all those Bible verses that we just sort of went through and say like, well, actually, if you look at it from this other way, or if you think about it 2,000 years later, they're like, really? And I say this kind of poorly written books that try to argue that the Bible doesn't deem homosexuality as immoral, but they're not even respected. In fact, the, the, the stronger voices are people who just admit, yeah, the Bible's negative about homosexuality. We're not even going to like have that debate. One scholar, Luke Timothy Johnson, who is a gay scholar, says this, I think it's important to state 
clearly that we do in fact reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others that they have witnessed to, which tells us that the claim of our sexual orientation, in fact, to accept the way that God has created us. And so the point here is this. Most people, gay scholars themselves also, admit, yeah, the Bible is negative on homosexuality. We're not arguing it on that front anymore. But my point is that if we say that we can just agree to disagree on this and all be Christians, this is an open-hand issue, oh, this is not an essential, if we approach it that way, we are denying the authority of Scripture. There's also a concern of genuine salvation and discipleship. You know, because when we say, hey, this is a topic we can agree to disagree on, what we are essentially saying is that our point of unity will be the lowest common denominator of what we both believe. We cannot settle for that on this. If we believe that to walk with Jesus means to trust him and walk in repentance of sin, all kinds of sin, albeit imperfectly, then we have to endorse what the Bible clearly calls sin. And we can't find common ground with churches that will not call that sin. It's a close-hand thing. Five, last question. And, and this is where we'll conclude and, and close up. Why are we focused on this sin and not many other sins? Well, okay. In some ways, it is, um, it is okay, right, to talk a lot about this specific topic. I mean, the world certainly is. Like, let's not have a double standard here. So yeah, maybe that's one reason why. There are degrees of sin in the Bible. I don't think this is, this is the worst form of sin by any means. But there are degrees of sin in the Bible, okay? Like, there actually are. It's a thing. You do, you do know that sexual sin is worse than copying answers on someone's homework, okay? It is a thing. However, we do believe that all sin grieves the heart of our holy God. And every sin, small or big, renders you and me in need of grace that can only be found in Christ, Christ alone. And so I want to close with reading 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through 11. We've already read verse 9. Let me show it to you. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So he is first giving this, this overall category of the unrighteous who cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And then he lists off nine forms of unrighteousness of which homosexuality is just one. And so let's let Scripture balance us out on this. Should we exclude talking about homosexuality, hide it behind our back, affirm it? No, Scripture doesn't do that. Should we only talk about it? No, Scripture doesn't do that. Let me just read 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Isn't it good that this passage keeps going? Let me show you verse 11. Paul is writing to believers at Corinth. And he says, And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When we turn in faith to Jesus Christ, God gives us the holiness of Christ. We, in the moment of our conversion to Christ, attain a holiness that we could never attain on our own. The righteousness of Christ. And then God calls us to a journey of pursuing increasing holiness called spiritual growth, called sanctification, called discipleship, whatever you want to call it. A journey of holiness for a story, a purpose that is bigger than just our lives, but it is for eternity. So what is the truth? That God's better way is, whether single or married, to live a fulfilled, pure, and holy life that is in harmony both with the design and purpose of one's body and with the clear teaching of the Bible on sexuality. So let's close in prayer.